Happy New Year. It's been referenced many times, 2019. It's almost 2020. Sounds like a science fiction film, doesn't it? Hopefully some of you enjoyed the snow Thursday night. Who enjoyed the snow? Anybody? We smacked each other with some snowballs and built a little mini snowman that Jake named Stubby and he lasted about 12 hours. So hopefully some of you got to build a little snowman or smack each other with a snowball. Today we're beginning a new series, The Kingdom of God, A Biblical Vision. And our leadership team has been reading and praying and discussing vision for the new year and revisiting the biblical theology of the kingdom is at the center of what God has for us as a community in 2019. And our goal in this series is to dig deep into the biblical teaching on the kingdom, on uh, what God has for us. So why focus on the kingdom? Some of us may ask that. I've got three reasons here. One is because the kingdom of God, which is the dynamic rule and reign of God, is a central theme in the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is portrayed as a king. We caught a glimpse of this last week, didn't we, as we looked at Isaiah 6. And in the New Testament, God the Father is reigning and ruling through his son, the Lord Jesus. As we'll see in the coming weeks, the biblical story begins and ends with the kingdom of God. A second reason that we're looking at the kingdom is because it's the foundation of the message, mission, and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. You can look in Mark chapter 1. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It has come near. And then in Acts 1, verse 3, Jesus meets with his disciples for 40 days, and what does he talk with them about? The kingdom of God. So there's something really important about the message of the kingdom. So if it permeated the life and ministry of Jesus, then it should also permeate ours. A third reason that we're looking at the kingdom is because it's also a key theme in the Apostle Paul's teaching and ministry. If you look at Acts 28, the very end of Paul's missionary journeys, it recounts how Paul was in Rome. He was under house arrest. And he is speaking with people. These are some of the final words about the Apostle Paul before his martyrdom. And what is he speaking about? The kingdom of God to those who are visiting him as he's under house arrest. What are the fruits of a study like this? One is by tracing the threads that run through the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, we're going to get a better grasp of the overall narrative or story of the Bible. And the plan is to look, as we are this morning, at particular passages that illuminate aspects of the kingdom of God, beginning with the Old Testament and then moving all the way into the New Testament, the Gospels, Paul, the book of Revelation. A second fruit of looking at the kingdom of God over several weeks is that we are drawn into the story that we're looking at here. And we have a crucial role to play. The Lord has gifted each one of us and called us to not just learn about the kingdom, but actually to live it, to enter into this dynamic story. Are you up for that? 
I certainly am. This has been greatly stirring as I've been reading this. So as we give ourselves to the prayerful study of this together and worship around it and pray into it, we can be confident that God is going to be speaking and empowering and moving among us. Amen? So this morning, what I want us to do is look at one of the origins of the kingdom of God in the first chapter of Genesis. You can look there. We'll have it on the slides. It's Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And this is a book about beginnings. It's what the word Genesis means. And there are important elements in this passage about the kingdom of God. And they're often overlooked. Usually other things are highlighted. But this, in fact, is a passage about the kingdom of God. I'm going to read it, and I want you to listen for the notes of the kingdom of God in these few verses here. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Most importantly, this passage is about God. It's about the creator and the king over all creation. And we're zooming in to the sixth day when God created man and woman. And what we're going to discover here is that the kingdom of God was in God's heart from the very beginning. From the opening story of creation and redemption, God planned for man and woman together to share in the rule and reign of his kingdom. But the story takes a turn, doesn't it? And we'll see this. But God's plan for the kingdom is unstoppable, as the rest of the book of Genesis and the Old Testament and New Testament are going to reveal to us. So in these verses here, I want us to look at four truths about our relationship to the king, to one another, and to the kingdom of God. And the first is in verse 26 here. Verse 26a. And it says... Let us make humankind in our image. We ran into this last week, this whole idea of us. What in the world? Why would it say let us make humankind in our image? In short, this speaks of what is called the divine counsel. Do you remember last week? If you can remember in Isaiah 6, 8, what does God say to Isaiah? Who will go for us. It's the same divine counsel language that's used here. One commentator says this, let us create man should be regarded as a divine announcement. Listen to this, to the heavenly court, drawing the angelic host's attention to the master stroke of creation, man and woman. As Job 38.4 says, when I laid the foundation of the earth, all the sons of God, the angels of God, shouted for joy. Some other folks interpret that this is actually Trinitarian language. 
that there's something in this about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Perhaps that's the case. But while the doctrine of the Trinity is not explicitly taught here or known to the author, Scripture, as the inspired word of God, is going to amplify with meaning. And it's going to be talking about the mystery of God that even then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are involved in this moment, this creation of human beings. The text goes on to say that they're made in the image of God according to God's likeness. Could look at all kinds of language here. The, the word that's used here for humankind is Adam and then Adam-ah, which means from dust. And these creatures are made in the image of God, unlike all of the other created beings. There's something unique about man and woman and their relationship to God. There are all kinds of views on what the image of God means. And do you know what it means? We're not sure. The text actually leaves it rather ambiguous, and it uses two terms, image and likeness, to be ambiguous, because no one is fully like God. And that's what the Hebrew is suggesting here. We carry the image of God, but then it turns around and nuances that and says, you know, we're like God, though. Probably the best explanation that comes out of Jewish interpretation and some of the better Christian commentary point out that this phrase is only used four times in the entire Old Testament. And the word image of God, say this with me, imago Dei. Imago Dei, that's a Latin term. It was made popular looking at what the image of God means, the imago Dei. And I think probably the best explanation for this is found in the cultural context of the Bible. In the ancient Near East, where scripture was written, kings were actually described as the image of the God that they served. So human beings represented their God, making their will known on the earth. The biblical authors knew this, and so the Old Testament adapts that, corrects it, adjusts it, said, you've been writing about other false gods, we're writing about Yahweh, the true God of Israel, and then catch this, democratizes the idea making it available not just to a king, but to everyone. Do you catch that? So in the ancient world, they worshiped the king, the image of God. And now scripture takes that and says, no, the image of God is every human being that's created. There's something royal about all of us. A great commentator named Gordon Winham says this, the Old Testament affirms that not just a king is made in the image of God, but every man and woman. Every man and woman bears God's image and is God's representative on the earth. This is heavy. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, you carry God's image and kingdom. And for the person on the other side, maybe, who didn't get to hear that, you can turn to them. Carry God's image and kingdom. This is the word of God telling us this. The biblical authors appropriate this idea here and in other places. 
You can look in Psalm 8. There's a marvelous passage that speaks of human beings as a little lower than angels, crowned with glory and made to rule the works of God's hands. In this sense, we were created, you and I, with all of our mess, to be God's vice regents, God's royal representatives on the earth. We're going to look at this more when we look at what it means for God to give dominion to us. This is stunning. So being made in the image of God, according to God's likeness, may also suggest some other things of what we are called and what we're called to be in the future. In a little delightful book called God's Many Splendored Image, this woman named Nona Harrison, she's actually a a friend of mine, writes that aspects of the divine image include these kinds of things. Listen to this. Connectedness to God, reason, freedom, royal dignity, creativity, and even community. And then Nona says this, there are many facets of the splendid jewel that each human person can become. God invites us to remove the dirt hiding these facets and polish them until they shine with the beauty that God bestows on each of us. So we can hear in these words right here, there's a little bit of conflict, isn't there? We bear God's image, and yet it's distorted because of something called sin and rebellion against God. And we find this in Genesis 3, where it's spelled out in detail. I love this, though. Some early Christian theologians liken this image that's within each of us to a mirror that is created to reflect the glory of God. Just like a mirror would catch the radiance of the sun and reflect it out for others to see. So through repentance, prayer, meditation on the scriptures, growth in God's grace, obedience to Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, this dirt is removed over the mirror that's inside each of us. Isn't that a beautiful image? One of my favorite early church fathers named Gregory of Nyssa He was in Asia Minor where Paul did lots of his missionary work and it's modern day Turkey. He says this, he says that when we cooperate with the Lord, as he washes away the filth that is accumulated on our heart, the beauty of God will shine forth from us like the sun shining in all its strength. So imagine what might happen if you and I began to view other people in light of this, not just in here, respecting one another, but just think if we began to view other people outside the church as those created in the image of God who have an interior mirror that's waiting to be cleaned so that they can catch and reflect the glory of God. Al King shared a story with me this week, and I didn't plan on sharing it. It was just quick into my mind. Al was telling me about this person that went to an event where there was a well-known psychic, and this well-known psychic had all kinds of people there to visit. I think it was a book signing, and she was doing some readings, and what? 
the Lord spoke to him and said, I want you to go. I have a word for this young lady. And so he went and said, I think that God is talking to me. And he was waiting for her to just roll her eyes and say, oh, right. And he said, I think that you've been burned by the church. God gave you a gift. You've been burned by the church. You've left the church. And now you're using your gift. And the Lord began to whisper other things to this man. And he said, I think that you got connected to a guru, a spiritual guru. And that guru ended up abusing you. And all of a sudden, he has her attention. And then he says, I don't know why I'm saying this, but Jesus is your sign. And at that point, she broke down and wept. Is that right, Al? She broke, broke down and wept and was sobbing. And obviously he knew that he had heard accurately and that the risk was worth it. And this lady said, last night I was praying to the cosmos, to the universe, saying, would you give me a sign? And so God used this person ordinary person who took a risk and went and spoke and said, Jesus is the sign that you're looking for. And it rearranged her entire life. So why would I share that? Because I think there are lots of people just like that woman who are, their mirrors are covered up. Maybe new age, maybe occult. They may be demonized. They may be addicted to drugs. You can fill in the blank. But the Lord sees not as we see. The Lord sees the heart. The Lord has a way of looking into the interior and saying, I love this person. She is created in my image. I need my church, my children to go and call this out. So that story lit something in me and I'm going to take some risks in the coming days and weeks. Will you join me in that? In a very ordinary way, just telling people what God may have for them and not doing it in a dogmatic way, Thus says the Lord. No, it's, you know, I, I sense that God may be saying this and encourage, call things out that are in people. I think if we do that, we're going to see the Lord move in some powerful ways. So God created us to bear his image and to rule with him. But because of sin, humans forfeited our ability to rule with God. Therefore, God sent a second Adam, as the Apostle Paul talks about in the book of Romans, the Lord Jesus, who repaired the damage that was caused by sin and paved the way for us to once again rule with God in the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. This leads to the second point, back to the text here at 126, where it says, let them have dominion over the fish, birds, cattle, and wild animals and every creeping thing. So the previous part of the text spoke about our relationship to God, while this here speaks about our relationship to the rest of the created order. This is a strange phrase, isn't it? Have dominion over these things. And it occurs 22 times in the Old Testament, and it deals with such relationships as this, an administrator over his employees, a king over his subjects, or a shepherd supervising his flock. So in one of these instances, in Psalm 72, the king who has dominion rules in peace and is the champion of the poor and the disadvantaged. 
One commentator says, what is expected of the king is responsible care over that which he rules. Thus, like the image, to exercise dominion reflects royal language. Man is created to rule, but this rule is to be compassionate, not exploitive. Even in the Garden of Eden, the one who wishes to be Lord of all must be servant of all. So to exercise dominion, as God is speaking here in his word, means responsible care and humble service. Some have used this text to justify the exploitation of the natural world or other humans. This is a distortion of what scripture teaches, is it not? Others have used texts like this to devise what has become known as dominion theology. Has anyone heard of dominion theology? Put succinctly, dominion theology interprets this verse right here as a mandate for Christians to exercise dominion over all things, including political institutions. The idea of establishing Christian government led overtly by Christian political leaders who enforce law based on the Bible is not a viable model. John Calvin, the great reformer in the 16th century, attempted to do just this in Geneva, Switzerland, and it did not go well. So this serves as an example of why this is not a good idea to take a text like this and politicize it. Do you hear me on that? I think a more balanced perspective, and I get this from other folks over the last 2,000 years, this is not my idea at all, a more balanced perspective is this, that Christians are called to serve in political institutions and bring the influence of the kingdom of God into that institution or that organization, not taking it over. And secondly, the scriptures teach that the only theocracy or rule of God that will work will be after the return of Jesus. When he rules the nations with justice and equity, we'll see in the teachings of Jesus in a few weeks that he teaches the exact opposite of taking dominion over other people over institutions. Actually, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like leaven. And what does he say? That leaven is worked into the dough of culture, of society, and it permeates it and influences it in subtle, almost invisible ways. That is what the kingdom of God is about. Amen? There's a third point here at verse... 27, God creates humankind in his image. In the image of God, he creates them male and female. This verse reinforces that we are created in the image of God, male and female together. Many cultural influences and voices are bringing confusion around the wisdom of God's beautiful design of male and female. It's heart-wrenching. Regardless of what you and I hear through media in various forms, we are different from one another. We complement each other and we work together in ways 
that our spiritual enemy tries to distort. Why? I'll tell you why. Because when men and women form strong marriages and healthy families, and when men and women work well together, no matter what avenue that is, with honor and respect, the image of God shines forth. Make space for the kingdom of God. So, of course, the enemy is doing all that he can to attack manhood, womanhood, our cooperation, our honor, our respect for one another. Hesitant here, but I talked to Amanda about this. I want to clarify something, can I? God transcends gender and sexual identity. Listen to me. The scriptures teach this. Numbers 23.19 says clearly that God is not man. Jesus says in John 4.24 that God is what? Spirit. I heard some of you say that God is spirit and we worship in spirit and in truth. Now it is true. The word made flesh in Christ is male. But God, the first person of the Holy Trinity, transcends all human symbols and limitations, including gender. You will hear all kinds of madness around this. You will hear people call God a daddy in the sky or a mommy in the sky. You'll hear goddess language, these kinds of things. The Christian tradition interpreting the Old and New Testament is abundantly clear that there is something of God that's reflected in us as male and female, but God is always more than we are. It's not, God, you're made in our image, so therefore you must be male and or female. No, it's the opposite. There is something of God that's reflected in us, but it is a great mystery. Are you with me on that? This verse, which speaks about male and female image bearers, paves the way for what's next in the text here, fertility and multiplication. Again, what I just articulated right there is the official view of the church, little o orthodox. That is the standard view that God transcends all of our language and metaphors and images for various reasons. And really, the reason is so that we can't shape God into our image and control God. That's the whole impetus behind that is God is always more. So the fourth and final thing here is that we were blessed by God to be fruitful and multiply. God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the same blessing that was given to the animals in 122, be fruitful and multiply. But here, there's a blessing connected to it. Look at what it says. God said to them. So this underscores the personal relationship that God the creator has with human beings. God doesn't say anything or speak anything to the other creatures, only human beings. So this blessing to be fruitful and to multiply echoes throughout the remainder of Genesis and the rest of the entire Old Testament, beginning with Adam and Eve and their offspring and extending into the lives of the patriarchs of Israel 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, others, fruitfulness and multiplication of children, flocks, and wealth is a sign of image bearers blessed by God. We'll see this next week. We're actually going to look at Abraham and Sarah and their call to multiply and to bring great blessing to all the nations. Looking at this little piece here where it says to subdue the earth. This is strange language to modern ears, is it not? This is suggesting settlement and agriculture. As we see in the next chapter, Genesis 2.5, this indicates proper use of God's creation, the natural world. Amanda and I were talking about this yesterday, and she brought up how amazing the work of farming is in America. She said, we rarely talk about it, cultivating food from the earth, as this verse right here suggests, is an expression of God's kingdom calling on human beings. God bless the farmers. They're doing what scripture promises here. Amanda reminded me, we tend to overlook how important things like this are until something goes wrong. Like the recent problem with E. coli and romaine lettuce. That's a good example. This makes me want a fresh salad right now. Anybody else? So I want us to wrap up here. Looking at these three verses here, I want to just make three quick statements and then we're going to have some ministry time. The first is that this passage right here shows us that the kingdom of God is in the heart of God from the very beginning. God's plan was for us to rule and reign with him. But human beings screwed it up. We rebelled against God and we forfeited this amazing calling and privilege. But we'll get to see that through the second Adam, God's kingdom plan will come to fruition. A second thing here, as we conclude, God's created us in his image and likeness to represent him on the earth. What? As we'll see in the coming weeks, we only fulfill this calling through a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This just hits me freshly. We are called to be God's representatives on the earth. Finally, Next week, we're going to look at the story of the kingdom continuing through Abraham and Sarah and their call to multiply and to fill the earth with God's presence and God's kingdom purposes. More specifically, this faithful response that we're going to see with Abraham and Sarah to God's command will lead to God's blessing for the entire world world, for all nations, most importantly through the arrival of the promised one, the Messiah, who will bring the kingdom. So Lord, we ask this morning, I I pray that the word of God would take root in each of us. It would take root in my heart. It would take root in the heart of your beloved people. And Lord, we would realize this amazing calling to be your image on the earth, to represent you, to to bring your kingdom 
with you because you love us and you give us power and you transform us in the process. We ask, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done among us as it is in heaven. Amen.